Well, hi. Welcome to this week's lesson called God's uh, Provision for Victory Over Addiction. Last week we talked about gambling. And gambling is something that could definitely spill over into this, that, that can become an addiction for some people. We're going to talk about how God provides uh, victory over addiction. Let me start off by giving you uh, an analogy. Okay, I enjoy the game of basketball. Many of you know that. Uh, so if you were to offer me that I was allowed to take one jump shot, um, I would take you up on that, but it would be difficult to take just one. I would desire to shoot more than one shot. Or a couple other things I enjoy. Uh, if I could hit uh, just one golf ball or make just uh, one cast of the fishing rod, uh, that would be difficult. Um, I would want to do that more and more. There's a thrill to it. And maybe um, you have something. Think about what you desire, the things you like to enjoy doing. Could you do it just one time? Right? There's a thrill that we're chasing. There's a reason that we enjoy doing this. And uh, it might be okay to do it over and over again, but if you have to start missing work because of it, or you start neglecting your family because of it, well, now it's becoming an addiction, and it's a problem. And for some people, just one drink is causing a problem, or maybe taking a certain kind of drug. It's, it's causing um, some serious problems, some life-altering changes in their lifestyle. And it's an addiction, and it needs to be um, addressed. And that's why today we're going to look at what uh, the Bible has to say about addiction and how we can see that uh, there is a way that we can overcome addiction. Uh, God has provided a way. So I want to do another exercise with you. Think about your favorite food. Think about the food that you enjoy the most. Now, if I offered you a tiny bit of your favorite food, uh, would you take it? Would you be able to eat a, a very small portion of your favorite food? Or would that cause you to desire and want more and more? For you and for some people, you might choose that it's better to just not eat the food at all than to have a small portion. Or think about it this way. All right, your favorite food. If that's all you could eat for the next month, what would happen? All you could eat was your favorite food. What would cause you to want to eat something else? Uh, your, your desire would change. You would want to eat some kind of other food. It wouldn't matter uh, what it was. Well, listen, God has given us desires, and desires are a good thing. But when we start worshiping our desires, it becomes idolatry, and that's a problem. Or uh, when we start going after our desires, um, they can change. And it's not enough. We, we, we need to change to something else. So as we, um, as we look at addiction through a biblical perspective, we're going to see that at really at the heart of the issue, um, it's an idolatry issue. Our addiction has some kind of idolatry of our heart that is causing us uh, to pursue something, to worship something more than we should. Addicts suffer from terrible cravings. The cravings rule their lives. The habit has such a strong grip that it demands to be put before everything else, no matter the cost. So let's go ahead and define the addiction problem. 
First, we are going to look at the disease model. In 1956, the American Medical Association declared alcohol addiction a disease, calling it alcoholism. But to this day, nobody has still provided any source of cure for this disease. Um, and in America and the Western world, the disease model is used to address addictions. So treatment centers, rehab centers, 12-step programs are using the disease model uh, for addicts. Now let's ask the question, what kind of hope is there for these addicts when they're suffering from a disease that has no cure? There's no solution to it. It's pretty poor, right? Where are they supposed to find their hope from? Well, everybody agrees that the body is being harmed from the substance that they're intaking or the addiction that they're uh, struggling with. But not everybody agrees on the origin. We, is, it a, is it a disease from start to finish? Did it start from somewhere else and then it becomes a disease? Uh, they're unsure of this, but we have to understand where it originates from in order to help us understand how to fix the problem, how to solve it. Um, recently, there's even been a big push to reclassify alcoholism and drug abuse as a mental health issue. They want to reclassify it as mental health. Um, but again, wh where um, are, are the problems that these addicts are suffering from? Are, are they just health issues from a disease or a mental health problem? Or is it originating from somewhere else? Or where is this addiction and the problem coming from? So that is the disease model. But now we need to look at the biblical model. And this is a point that I've been making throughout this series, but it's such an important truth, and it's this. God's word is the authority. God's word is the authority. We have to ask the question, what does the Bible say? If you are a believer, you should be asking this question all the time. And when we look at the addiction as just not biological, but as a spiritual problem, we find that the Bible has much to say on both the cause of and the solution to addiction. We go to the Bible because we believe it is the final authority for all matters of life and godliness. Let's look at 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So the, the hope that addicts have who are believers should be this. He lacks nothing that pertains to godliness. The addict lacks nothing. He can live a godly life and he can be victorious over addiction. A second passage we can look at is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Now this is a very well-known passage of scripture. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the freedom for the addict comes through God's word. It comes through God's word. It shows us uh, what our sin is, right, through reproof 
It shows us how to get right through correction. It shows us, or I should say it instructs us on how to stay right, which is the training in righteousness. God's word is the answer to the freedom from addiction. Let's look at one more passage. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, from this passage, we see that God's word is the, uh, reveals the reasons behind our actions, our motives, and beliefs. The Bible tells us God's truth and reveals to us the truth about our hearts. Both of those functions make it the essential tool in understanding and overcoming addictions. So not only is God's word the authority, God's word calls addiction sin. It calls addiction sin. So what is it that the Bible says that is so essential in overcoming addictions? Well, the good news is, is that it provides hope for the addict. Deliverance is possible. There's no, um, just no cure, no answer to the disease. There is deliverance. But before getting to the good news, we have to understand the bad news, which is found in the Bible. The bad news is that the addict is responsible for his actions. He's not suffering helplessly from a disease. His addiction is a sin problem. The only diseases associated with substance abuse are a result of the abuse, not the cause of the abuse. I'm going to read three different passages out of the book of Romans that gives us a clear message that sin affects everyone. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Every single person is a sinner. And as a sinner, each person is separated from God and by nature a child of God's wrath. To be a child of God's wrath means every single person deserves God's wrath on his sin. Properly communicating that addiction is a sin problem begins with the right terminology. Whereas today's secular term for addiction to alcohol is alcoholism, a medical condition, the biblical term is drunkenness. The Bible has more to say about drunkenness than any other addiction. It is in essence the biblical model for all addictions. Scripture always refers to drunkenness as sin, never as a sickness or disease or a mental health problem. I think it's important that we look at Galatians chapter 5 uh, verses 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, 
of which I forewarn you, just, if I, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you can see from these verses here that drunkenness, it's, it's grouped around other sins, such as jealousy, adultery, and murder. It's showing us that drunkenness is a matter of the heart. It is a sin. It's not a disease. It's something that people do, not something that happens to a person. Let's take a look at one more reference. Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Paul is instructing the believers in the church of Rome here, um, and we can see here how he is not viewing drunkenness as a disease. Here's what he writes. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So Paul is saying here that drunkenness in this list uh, is a work of darkness. He tells us to walk as if it was the day, as if it was during the daytime. And he says to make no provision for the flesh. Some versions will say uh, to cast it off. You cannot cast off something or you can make no provision if it's a disease. You cannot just remove a disease. Um, but it's in regard to our sinful fleshly lusts. And he says, instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul mentions drunkenness and a long list of things that are going to keep people out of heaven. And if drunkenness is a disease that people have no control over, he wouldn't have said this. Drunkenness is a result of choice and it's a result of sin. Um, as we read through the Old Testament, uh, we repeatedly see that drunkenness is due to sinful failure on the part of a person. In the New Testament, as we read through, there's never anyone being healed of drunkenness. There's no miracle where Jesus healed someone from their drunkenness. So if we can figure out and determine the correct definition or the correct terminology of certain terms, it's going to help us find the correct solution uh, to the problem. So we have just defined what addiction is. We understand now that it's not a disease problem, but it's a sin problem. So now we're going to go to point two, which is realizing victory over addiction. We need to understand addiction. And the first point we're going to look at is addiction is slavery to sin. That's right. Addiction is slavery to sin. The Bible is clear that drunkenness is a sin and the addict is responsible for that sin. One might think that the solution is for him to just stop sinning, but stopping is not that simple. The scriptures uh, have plenty of warnings about the deceptive and enslaving nature of sin. Sin is not just a matter of choosing right or wrong. Humanity has been held in sin's sway ever since the fall. God's warning to Cain about his unacceptable offering uh, shows us that. We read in, in Genesis 4, 7, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. This was God's warning to Cain. 
You know, God describes sin as malicious and this desire to control and dominate a person's life. This warning is repeated in the New Testament. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Romans 6 tells us that we are slaves to sin or to righteousness. We find that in verse 16. And if you go down to verse 19, it says we are slaves to what we allow to dominate us. So the biblical definition of addiction is simply slavery to sin. Addiction is not only slavery to sin, but it is also idolatrous sin. Addiction to sin is not the only sin that is happening inside of a person. There is also the problem of idolatry. Now we can learn a lesson from the Israelites uh, who we read about in the Old Testament and how they were constantly turning away from God to worship false gods or false idols. Really what they're doing is they're, they want to give in to their fleshly desires. They want to be able to live how they want to live. So these false gods or these false idols become their means uh, or their tools to be able to do what they want. They, they were giving into sexual immorality. They were um, giving into drunkenness or gluttony, different sins that we see. Well, the problem was idolatry. They were using this as a, as a means uh, to live the way they wanted, wanted to live, to give in to their fleshly desires. And it's the same way with the so-called addict. It's not just the slavery to sin, but it's idolatry. It's a means to get what you really want. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. It says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, talking about the Israelites. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Well, their motivation was to do what they wanted to do. It was to play. And, and this has a connotation of involving yourself in sexual activity. They were doing what they wanted to. They had a lust for evil things. And to a substance abuser, the drug is the tool to get him what he wants. It is the means to an end. And what do they want, right? It could be either the high or some relief, an escape from problems, maybe a boost in energy or an acceptance in a group. But who or what is the addict worshiping? In the end, it's his own evil fleshly desires. Well, being lured or enticed by your own lust is very dangerous. Being drawn in by what your heart's desire is, your fleshly desires. Um, we need to take some caution with this. Let's look at James 1, 13 through 15. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. So, I mean, the end result of us being lured and enticed by our own desires and lust is destruction and death. Following your evil desires never ends well.
Those who give in and serve their desires and hunt for satisfaction and fulfillment are basically hunting themselves. At the end of the hunt, they will have destroyed their own lives, while the prize they tried to capture remains as elusive as ever. Seeing addiction as an idolatry problem helps us understand that no one could deal with his addiction if he thinks that it is a problem caused by something such as a disease for which he carries no blame. The addiction must be addressed at the desire level. The addictive behavior is a symptom of the desire. So let's understand victory, and it begins with the change of the heart. Since our sin nature is powerful and addiction is a matter of idolatry, being able to leave an addiction takes more than just achieving sobriety. If the heart has not changed, then sobriety is just external change or behavior modification. The person is never more than a day away from relapsing. Sobriety will not fix a life, a family, or problems, and sobriety doesn't come with eternal life. Sobriety will not get to the root of the matter found in the heart. Biblically, the heart is the term used for our will and emotions, our thoughts, choices, desires, and feelings. Our idolatry resides in our heart. God said that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is not as interested in our behavior as he is in our idolatrous hearts, the true source of our behavior. We know from Jeremiah 17, 9, what the condition of the human heart is. Jeremiah wrote, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Human hearts are exceedingly deceitful, desperately wicked, and incurably sick. If a person stops his sinful behavior, but he has never changed his beliefs about the, the reason for his addiction, um, there's always a chance of a relapse. And more importantly, there hasn't been any change at all. If the person, uh, if there hasn't been any heart change in the person, well, then the foundational idolatry that is taking place um, is still going to be there fueling the addiction. The only way that, that this person can overcome is by repentance and turning and depending on God instead of the idolatry that's taking place in their heart. Secondly, in understanding victory, is our hope in Christ. So if the bad news is God says addiction is a sin, the good news is that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a solution to our sin. The Bible has a lot to say about addiction, but it also mentions about Christ and what he offers to us and how we can have our hope in him. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So in Christ, uh, there's great news for us. Believers are new creations. Old things are passed away, and new things have come. Jesus is not just a temporary help for us. 
He is the one, he is our savior that will be able to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. Let's take a look at John chapter eight and we'll see how powerful sin is by the means that was necessary to overcome it. I'm going to read verses 31 through 36. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's seed, and have ne yet never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Sin is powerful, but God's Son is far more powerful. He provides salvation from our sins and then the opportunity to grow in Him. What we have in Christ because of the cross and the resurrection is invaluable. In Christ, we already have the victory. At the cross, Satan was defeated. He is a defeated enemy. Ephesians 6.13 says, Having done everything, stand firm. So don't fall for his bait. Don't engage. Instead, resist. Stand. But you might ask, what about those constant, ever-present temptations that I, that I go through, that, that hit me every day? What about those uncontrollable desires that, that I feel? Is, is Jesus really enough by himself to overcome that? And the answer is, of course, of course he is. Jesus is enough for you. So let me introduce you to the Holy Spirit. So we have to understand the Holy Spirit, and we need to learn to rely on him. Temptation will be a problem for every believer until we get to heaven. Our bodies of flesh fall to temptation, both from within ourselves and also from Satan. A good definition of temptation is the enticement to sin based upon the promise of pleasure or gain. Let me read that one more time. A, a definition of temptation is the enticement to sin based upon the promise of pleasure or gain. Sure, everyone has given into temptation, but whatever the craving is, the flesh will be satisfied only temporarily. The cravings are going to come back. Actual victory is won through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Well, let's see what happens when we walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So if we are walking in the Spirit, we will not be carrying out the desire of the flesh. We don't have to give in. We don't have to fulfill the lusts within us. The Holy Spirit is in us to give us victory over temptation as we live according to his direction. Remember Romans 13, 14 told us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Putting on Christ is what happens when we live by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will produce fruit in us that causes us to be like Christ in our thoughts and actions. Paul wrote, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The last fruit is self-control. And it's not only a fruit, but it is also a weapon. Self-control is the greatest weapon in the Christian's armory, though often it grows rusty from lack of use. It requires effort. 2 Peter 1.5 says, Applying all diligence. It means making every effort. It's hard work. Many of us want self-control, but we don't want to work hard to get it. The work comes in resisting temptation, battling the urge as we trust the Spirit to deliver us by His power. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God will give us the grace to endure and overcome the temptation. The result is found in the very next verse, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So the result is a self-controlled life, lived righteously before God and godly before others. To someone who is suffering from addiction, uh, it may seem impossible to use self-control. Because if you're not saved or before you were saved, there was no power to help you or to assist you. But if you are a believer, you now have the Holy Spirit to help you to fight temptation. You need to tap into that power. If you're saved and you're still saying that um, you can't win, you can't exercise self-control, well then, you're not doing it with all diligence. You're not relying on the Spirit. You're not working hard at it. It's, it's not going to be easy. The flesh wants to win. The flesh is going to do whatever it can to get its desires and to win. But you need to pray and, and work through the Holy Spirit to help you fight that temptation. And sometimes it's necessary to maybe go to a detox for a short while. To go somewhere where it's impossible to um, give yourself the cravings that you desire. But again, this is all part of the growth process. You have to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. Remember that in Christ, we have all we need to live a godly life and escape the lusts that are in the world. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So everything is in place for you to have victory over any addiction. We have Christ. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We also have fellow believers and the local church to help and assist us. So you can have victory over any addiction in your life. Let's talk about one more thing that will help us have victory. It's renewing the mind. This is important. The battle for self-control and the battle with temptation take place in the mind. Romans 12, 2 and Ephesians 4, 22-24 speak to the renewal of the mind, or the thinking. 
Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. So if we don't put in the effort to renew our mind, it will be continually conformed to this world. We will continually think and act like the world. We have to put in the effort to renew our mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-6 through 6 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds, as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and are ready to punish all disobedience, whenever your obedience is fulfilled. So it's warning us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It believes that we could have fortresses in our minds where Satan or maybe ourself has set up camp with some lies and deception, where some lustful desire remains in control. Remember, the enemy's goal is to dominate, control, and devour us. We are to get rid of those sinful thoughts, demolish the fortress, and put up new defenses by renewing our minds. So how do we renew our minds? The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to make us more like the Son of God. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. I mentioned this earlier. He says, To lay aside, in reference to your former conduct, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So Paul says to lay aside their former conduct, the old man, which grows more and more corrupt as it is driven by deceitful lusts. In place of the old man, the believers were to put on the new man, which is given to us by God. Our goal is to fully realize that new man in our lives. We put on that new man daily as we renew our thinking through God's word. Jesus said God's word is truth. As we feed our minds with it, the spirit will use it as a weapon against the deceitful lusts that threaten to capture our hearts. I challenge you to do a heart exam. Uh, take a look at your life, examine it, and see if there's any sinful addictions in your life. Do this prayerfully and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the deepest parts of your heart. Maybe something will surface. Addictions are just symptoms of idolatry. And it's important to address the idolatry in order to overcome the addiction. If you happen to have an addiction that's, that's serious and you're having a problem with, you feel trapped, I, I beg you to take this lesson seriously and to seek additional help from one of our pastors. So our biblical response to this current cultural issue is to realize victory over addiction through Christ. Realize victory over addiction through Christ. The memory verse for this week is 2 Peter 1.3. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Well, thank you for joining me. Next week, we're going to look at God's truths in regards to alternative lifestyles. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about marriage, and it'll be pretty clear uh, from a biblical perspective that alternative lifestyles are a sinful perversion of God's plan for marriage. So join me next week as uh, we begin that topic.